Friends, welcome to Hit Different, your weekly music culture podcast with me, Mikey Carl, Marcus Teague, and Kylie Tadewa Chiranga, aka Kai. Coming up this episode, talking about Tixel and Oztix banding together to fuck via Gogo off. Marcus Teague, what are you talking about? I'm going to talk about The Beatles, a new documentary from Peter Jackson about The Beatles and the curly nature of collaboration. Sick, and we're going to deep dive on Kai's burgeoning career. Welcome, co-hosts. That is Marcus Teague and Kai. Hello, Marcus. How is life for you? It's pretty good. It's pretty good. We're eking out of lockdown and I couldn't be more excited. Damn straight. And Kai, how are you, my love? I'm good. Freedom is very, very sweet. That's right. I'm doing a story on Kai for NME Australia. And last time I spoke to her, she just got out of two weeks quarantining because she went hiking with a friend who had COVID. Friend is now kind of okay, I think. Everyone's okay, guys. Everyone's okay. <laughs> if you're listening to this, you're okay. You're all right now, books. Support Hit Different, another mushroom podcast covering Australian music. Why wouldn't you? You tight ass. Become a subscriber. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Uh, I'll check out the episode notes. Basically, it's it's a dollar for the first month. <laughs> so it costs fuck all. And you will be supporting Australian music journalism, Australian music, and just generally being a good person. So why wouldn't you do it? As I said, I'm not trying to guilt trip you. I'm trying to guilt trip you. Friends, here we are. We have arrived. Tixel are leveling up with deep tech integration, a.k.a. fuck via Gogo and the donkey you rode in on. Apologies to all our donkey listeners. Exciting news. Australian ticketing website Oztix has announced a new partnership, my friends. It's going to see a massive clampdown on scalping, fraud, and false advertising in the online ticket reselling world. This is kind of this thing. It just, the Via Gogo thing, it just keeps on going. Google punished them for a little while and put them down the search. And then I think they just went, hey, Google, here's a whole bunch of money. And Google allegedly said, no worries. Come on back, Via Gogo. See you at the Christmas party. So, how's this happening? Glad you asked. Oztix are going to work in collaboration with Tixel, who offer legit. This is a Melbourne company who offer legitimate resellers the opportunity to safely and securely transfer event tickets online. The pair have unveiled a new quotation marks deep tech integration that aims to see a dramatic decrease in fraudulent resale activity. This is such a good thing. This is very very hopeful. Um, Oztix commercial director Seth Clancy. It's a funny name. He says the sheer quantity of new event builds on our platform is something I've never seen before, and it's all in response to a huge demand from fans wanting to get back out there. I think that initial uh, nervousness that people have is is very quickly evaporating. People just want to get the hell out of there, get out of their four walls, and see some live music and live events. Corner Hotel. It's based in Richmond, legendary venue. Uh, the GM Rod Smith said of the partnership. After we brought Tixel on board, we saw a huge 50% reduction in no-shows. That means more fans showing up, buying drinks, singing along to the band, grabbing a t-shirt, telling their friends what a bloody great time they had. I can't overstate what a huge difference that makes to our business. So that's a very, very good thing as well. Now, I've been watching Melbourne company Tixel grow uh, since 2018. Around then, I did a story on them for the Herald Sun. Um, R.I.P. Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> just, just manifesting, Fingers guys. Crossed. Just manifesting. It's manifesting. <laughs> Courtney, my producer, cut out one of those manifestings, okay? I got too excited. Um, 
So yeah, they're a Melbourne business doing great work to offset the abhorrent practices of Viagogo, a faceless multinational shattering kids' dreams on a daily basis. So many stories I know, even from working at the Herald Sun, of people emailing me going, I bought tickets to see Ed Sheeran. And we got to the door and they imagine their whole family is there. They just, this is the one concert they go to say, you know, per annum. And they just get told, I oh, know this, these tickets have been used four times already. Like these Viagogo, just properly evil, evil company. Um, I'm also in a victims of Viagogo Facebook group for research, not in a Jane Gazzo on Telegram type way. Uh, this is from yesterday. So I paid 242 pounds for two tickets to see Lewis Capaldi. Obviously before realizing the nature of Viagogo, just rang Halifax, this person overseas, to open a dispute. They said, I'm not entitled to charge back until after the date of the concert. Money down the drain. This is happening every freaking day. Ugh. So I must say, right, Michael Gadinsky, rest in peace. That's a real rest in peace. Um, he backed Ed Sheeran's stance in 2018 that uh, Ed Sheeran wouldn't honor via GoGo tickets. The issue, of course, back then and still going on today is when you present a ticket, it doesn't say bought through Viagogo. It's a barcode, in you go generally, and you know you get on with your night. Not all Viagogo tickets are, are invalid. Just a hell of a lot of them are, and a lot of them are getting charged so much more money, You know, four times, five times the amount. So let's talk about the ticketing ecosystem that exists around the world. You know what I mean? Like this ticket touts in Brixton. You know, I remember going to see a Queens of the Stone Age concert in, in 2005, Buying or selling. And so it does happen. Like it, there are people out there genuinely who are trying to help, you know, with, um, you know, a, maybe a small markup. I think legally you're allowed to have a 10% markup on the face value. And that's, that seems, that seems fair enough. Um, what's your experience, you guys, buying resold tickets? If you ever have, have you been ripped off? What's, what's the go? I've only ever bought resold tickets once, and that was for a basketball game in new york me too me too and not only that but the name on the ticket was uh billy connolly <laughs> <laughs> right and that's amazing so it was at madison square garden it was to see the new york knicks and it was really close to the court and the name was billy connolly i think it must be the billy the same billy connolly right that's the only time i've ever used a ticket resale service Looking at Rod Smith from the corner's statement, he says, after we brought Tixel on board, we saw a huge 50% reduction in no-shows. So was that to suggest that gigs regularly have less people there, a lower capacity, because of the imprint of people buying stuff on Viagogo and either not showing up or the tickets don't exist or they're invalid or whatever? Like, is that a common occurrence that attendance is down because of that essentially kind of scam going on through Viagogo? It must be. And the 50% is a little bit misleading, I think. I think it's showing it's showing how often tickets are sold and then not used by mm. Viagogo scammers. So, mm. I mean, I'm sure he's sort of um, egging the pavlova, whatever that expression is, <laughs> over-egging it. But I, I, at the same time, I think he's got a very, very good point. For anyone who doesn't know, and perhaps you can explain this a bit to Mikey, Viagogo is is kind of pretty much regularly recognized in the industry as not rock solid in terms of buying tickets and resale tickets. Quite the opposite, yeah. Yeah, they're shocking. Yeah, and often it can introduce a lot of uh, tickets that don't exist, essentially. Yeah, exactly. How this keeps happening, no one knows. Yeah, and I mean, the fact that Ed Sheeran, the biggest selling uh, artist in the world right now in terms of concerts, if he can't stop it, that's when we need people like Tixit will come along with deep integration 
uh, and to work with Oztix. Tixel, a few years ago, I think 2018, they, some, they resold something like 1,236 tickets to Strawberry Fields Festival, and they managed to get all 1,236 sold on at the door, everything, you know, hunky-dory. So that's that's very, very good. Kai, what's your experience buying resold tickets? Oh, I have been caught, caught in the Viagogo web, unfortunately. Yeah. Oh. This is a safe space. You can um, exfoliate. <laughs> um, so Beyonce's Mrs. Carter World Tour, me being a giant stan, was like, yep, yeah, I have to go. <laughs> being 16, I didn't have like a regular job that I was working that I could just be like, oh, yeah, tickets are on sale. I can go and get a ticket. So it was always going to be a resale situation. Uh, so took double shifts at KFC. Worked my butt off all summer, like all school holidays. Went and bought my tickets on Viagogo, bought two tickets. Um, and I think the original price was oh like God. 160 GA or whatever it was. And I think I bought them on Viagogo for 220 each. So I bought two tickets. And of course, then found out that Viagogo wasn't like a trustworthy ticket seller. And I luckily found out before the concert because my friends were like don't buy it through mm. this like i've just found out that like it's a scam and i'm thinking oh my god like i've mm. just worked all holidays and i've spent you know my 440 dollars on my tickets so then i had to like try to find like another reseller i was looking for tickets for ages and i ended up getting tickets off some random person on facebook again big risk and they had like doubled mm. the price of their ticket mm. so Double, triple shifts at KFC just to get to Beyonce. Um, <laughs> I went to the concert and everything did turn out great. And I did check out those Viagogo tickets to see if they would have worked and they didn't. So got super, wow. super lucky oh, wow. that, uh, yeah, decided to get different tickets because I would have been heartbroken, like devastated. Yeah. Oh, man. We've got a great story later on, too, about Leanne LaHavis concert that you attended that sort of you know, set you <laughs> off. Ooh, I'll talk about that later, friends. Sorry, Marcus. The thing about Viagogo as well is that it always usually comes up first in Google searches. So if you're frantically looking for a ticket, like you just type in Beyonce, blah, 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 the venue, that sort of thing, you know, and it comes up and it says they're on sale, like you, you're not going to spend time. Like, you know, they're on sale, you know, they're going to sell out. So you're just kind of clicking on the first links that come yep. up. Mm. They're nasty too because this is, you know, your time's running out, your screen, mm. you know, you've got one more minute to purchase and people are like, it just preys on people's passions as well. It preys on totally. people's fanaticism for something they love. Uh, working all those shifts at KFC, I'm so glad this has a nice <laughs> happy ending this story, you know, like it could be a whole other thing because think of the recriminations with, you know, like a dad or a mum buying tickets and then getting to the door of a, of a concert and then being told, no, you can't see the Wiggles today because, you know, you want to be a go-go. <laughs> And that's that that's 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 fights in the car. That's passive aggression. That's like a good two or three weeks, maybe longer, of just you know lingering yep. kind of anger. It's it's unconscionable this this company. So yeah, but yeah, on a, on a nice sort of spin is is the um yeah a nice sort of outcome. It sounds like Tixel are doing a very good job, and we will keep uh, keep on them as well at Hit Different. I think we'll even have one of the Tixel people to come in and have a chat with us. Kai, with your team, do you talk about this sort of thing in terms of? who's selling tickets, who we're going through. You know, you've been part of some big shows as well, with people like Rule doing stadium stuff. Is is that kind of, I mean, I know that that's probably like separate offices down the back of the stadium, but from where you are, but 
you know, is, is that like something that people talk about behind the scenes or, or, or care about? I guess people do deals and that sort of stuff. Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially for bigger artists like Rule, um, you know, you've got bigger venues, you've got fanatic teenage girls who are trying to get these tickets the minute they're on sale and they get caught out in the scams too and they're scamming each other. The most mm. interesting thing mm. is like my Instagram has like a requests folder and when I was touring with Rule, I would have all of these group chats in my request folders from like the Rule fans who have like added me into their request stuff. And right. there were so many times that it was like, hey, Kai, oh, my God, like, can you please help us? Because we've bought these resale tickets from this person or from Via Gogo, from wherever it was. And they're not real tickets. And now we can't get into the show. And it's just like... Man, I wish I could help mm. you, but it's actually the worst thing. Like, there's mm. nothing you can do. You can't really even engage, can you? Nah, you can't. So, it's just like, oh, you can see them. And they are scamming each other. That's another thing. They're like, they know that, like, the other girl mm. wants to go to Rule, but, like, you'll pretend to sell your ticket to them and you get the money off them and then you just go to the show. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. That's shady ass. Have you you would have seen some pretty full on chat fights? I'm, gu- I'm guessing. Oh, cat fights, fights breaking out between the girls that camp for days before the show. It's a whole mm. thing. It's a whole whole thing. So that's a bit more hectic. Mm. I think for me, um, it's mm. been nice and streamlined because I haven't done like the big big venues yet. Um, but even the shows I have played for myself, there's been like issues of people turning up to the door and like not being able to get in and I think we mentioned it before with corner about mm. people buying tickets and they're not turning up mm. I had that issue with my mm. show where people had bought the tickets and they didn't come and then people came to the door mm-hmm. to get tickets and it was sold out but you know people hadn't come mm. to claim their tickets so it's got to be a better system yeah. as an artist how do you compartmentalize that and sort of push it away just before you get on stage if you're hearing those kind of stories? oh it's hard to it's hard because like i think um there's such a deep appreciation for people even wanting to come to the shows so i think like it's it's a bit mm. hard to separate sometimes and not think about it but um yeah i guess you just got to think about putting the best show on for the people who did make it into the room Mm. Um, you're doing uh, support for Young Franco coming up. You're playing places like the Tivoli, you know, the Forum. Uh, huge, huge gigs. Are you, are you anticipating that some similar stuff might go on there as well with, with mega fans going, hey, Kai, can you get me in? 100%. I can already see it happening because some of those shows are sold out. And if you go onto the Facebook pages, there's, you know, the posts of like, is anyone selling some tickets? And then you've got the like fake Facebook accounts that pop up and they're like, I'm selling a ticket and it's not a real account. and it, oh, It's a mm. whole thing. It's a whole thing. In 2018, the Andrews government created new legislation that made it illegal for people to resell tickets for more than 10% of the face value. And they're putting basically authorized ticket officers, you know, stomping around with police to try and catch those flouting the laws. They're going to face fines between $806 and $483,000. This is all well and good but it's such a hard space to police so i think they didn't have a whole lot of success doing that and it feels like they're kind of it's been put in the too hard basket by governments i'd like to call upon the federal government victorian government new south wales government brisbane everywhere that listens to hit different and beyond to really pull your finger out and do something because it's this you know this is a time where we need happiness and positive vibes and just you know a very kind of harmonious existence after everything we've been through so we really do need you to do a bit more in fact a lot more don't release a huge pamphlet about a plan either scomo to do it the plan 
yeah, we need we need something stronger. Let, let's tell the anti-vaxxers that Vigogo are behind the vaccine or something. Get them to riot outside their yes. offices. Let's use the anti-vaxxers sometime, somehow. Friends, you can hunt down myself, Marcus Teague, or get it, Kai, on the socials and say hi to us and don't ask us for free tickets. In just a moment, Marcus is going to take the lead on a little bit of collaboration talk. A fantastic Beatles article that dropped in The New Yorker. David Remnick wrote it. Very, very, very interesting. And also, Kai has been collaborating with a whole bunch of people making that sweet alchemy. Marcus, take it away. There was an article on the Beatles. I don't know if you've heard of the Beatles. There was an article on the Beatles the this Beatles. week in The New Yorker. It was essentially an interview with Paul McCartney. And the reason is that, or one of the vague reasons is that it's part of the promo for the upcoming Beatles Get Back three-part doco series directed and produced by Peter Jackson, which covers the making of the Beatles' 1970 and final album Let It Be, which was famously a precursor to their breakup. Mm. Opinions on the Beatles? Go. Adore them. <laughs> love. Absolutely love everything they stand for. And then Johan, who we had on recently from IOU, said the Beatles are underrated. And he's, he's like, they are underrated. I'm like, that's great. I hear that. I, I feel like a bit of a uh, contrarian because I recognize the Beatles are, are the best, but it's almost just too hard basket. Like for me, they're kind of like Mount Everest or something. Like people say it's the tallest, but I don't need to climb it to check. As in you don't listen to the Beatles much or when they come on, do you go? As in like I, I admire them and, and I listen to them every now and then, but I'm not kind of like a, like to be honest, I read, I've probably read more about the Beatles than I have actually listened to them. Uh-huh. I think probably, you're probably not alone there. There's be a, be a lot of people, maybe a lot of Gen, Gen Xers like yourself. It's almost too kind of overwhelming or something. Like too the body. Canon. Yeah, yeah, or something. I don't know. But I, but I love reading about them. Yeah, um, isn't it good? Norwegian wood. Maybe it's also because because obviously their influence is in basically everything. Mm-hmm. So to go back and listen to them, you don't get that shock that people had at the time of it being so new and intense because you're mm-hmm. so used to their influence in pop new music, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is in all of my years of DJing, I very, very, very rarely get a Beatles request. Maybe at a wedding a little bit, mm. but you know what I mean? Like it hasn't sort of gone on to this next generation of, oh, can you play a Beatles banger? Yeah, it's it's super rare. Mm. What about four or five seconds? Do you get that? Paul four McCartney, Rihanna, Kanye? <laughs> I kind of passed me by. I remember listening to it and going, I think it's pretty dope, but I didn't, it just, I'm, I'm more of a um, temporary secretary, Paul McCartney kind of guy. <laughs> He's got some amazing, weird disco shit. well anyway even though the Beatles have been written about billions of times it's fascinating to me how any in-depth discussion about them is always kind of about the nature of their collaboration I suppose like on one hand everyone recognizes them as quotation marks the best ever and they tower over popular music and yet everyone still loves to talk about who was better and whose songs were better and you know so and so didn't get enough credit and the other person did get enough credit and all that kind of stuff. I kind of love reading about that stuff in a way because, like, they were all fundamentally important members of this insanely successful band. And yet Lennon and McCartney teamed up as songwriters. That put off George and Ringo. The band broke up after only 10 years. Ever since then, people have talked about whose songs are better, recognizing they're the best, but also kind of, you know, this controversy about how they actually collaborated. And and that's part of what this new doco aims to address it basically is a a reworking of 
footage taken of their last record, which was a precursor to them breaking up. And that's also why McCartney's doing interviews now, because McCartney being, you know, Lennon passed away and I think it was 80, 81? 80, 81, yeah. And ever since then, McCartney has kind of been the guy left standing to kind of tell the story and respect his passing while also putting himself back in the narrative as... Because, you know, Lennon's the cool one, McCartney's the, the sweet one, essentially, is kind of yep, how yep. popular culture let it play out. And there's a couple of great quotes in the article. Mm. At, this, at the start, McCartney says, I remember saying to John, look, you know, it should just be you and me who, the, who are the writers. We never said, let's keep George out of it, but it was implied. And then they go, they go on to all the success, and then it talks about, as they started to come undone, the band's creative core was, was drifting apart. Lennon and McCartney were no longer an eyeball-to-eyeball collaboration. Once they had worked in constant proximity on tour buses or in shared hotel rooms, now Lennon wrote at his estate in the suburbs, McCartney at his house. Harrison went off to do stuff with the band. Ringo never really cared. He was just like a cool, cool, lazy drummer at the back. I'd like to be. Living his life. Let's see. (laughs) He's one contribution that I could think of. And then after they broke up, you know, there was all this acrimony. But anyway... McCartney still, in an article that literally came out last week, is still 50 years after the fact discussing the, this fraught nature of collaboration. Mm, he's 79 now, yeah. He's, and he's, you know, he, he, tra- he goes to the gym every day and, like, you know, works out. Mm. He's always producing music. He's, he's remarkable. I've always struggled a little bit with creative collaboration, to be honest. I'm always interested in this stuff, I think, because I don't really work like that. I, I'm not a great collaborator, at least without parameters. And Kai... It's, it seems really evident in your work and, and what you do that you very much welcome collaboration. Yeah. Into what you do. You, you, it's been kind of essential to your career so far. You've worked with producers, singers, artists, all sorts. So I won't name them all. Name the list, some, Marcus. The, you've got them written down. It will, it will give a good background. You've worked with producers like Fossa Beats, Billy Davis, Tintendo, uh, Some Sociable, you, Sam the Great, Rule, Meg Mac, Jessica Malboy, like the, the list goes on. I'm fascinated by how you inviting that into your creative process seems really vital for you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. I think it's uh, it's been an interesting transition for me because when I started out, I didn't know anyone who made music in Melbourne. So a lot of that writing was happening on my own. And I think it's really easy to think your ideas are the best if there's no one there to critique them. And I found that it only made me a better writer, even by myself, working with other people who could go, oh, maybe change that word or maybe change that flow, maybe change that melody up a little bit. And at first it was really jarring because I was like, no, like, fuck you. Like, this is a great idea. (laughs) (laughs) I hated it. I hated it so much. Um, But it was such a learning curve and it's totally changed the way that I am as a writer. And I think um, it's so funny talking about the Beatles because I think the biggest, one of the biggest things about collaboration that makes it so, I guess, integral to music making is the tension. Especially Mm -hmm. when you get into the room with another songwriter and, you know, the producer puts on whatever they've made. And you and the other songwriter look at each other and you know that there is a limited amount of time before they catch their groove and you've got to get in on that space. (laughs) So there's almost this like rising tension in the room of like, I need to get my best idea out right now before you do Mm. it and this song becomes the way you want to shape it. And I think that's just, it's such an interesting way to work because it's like, 
all of a sudden you can't um and ah about, oh, is this good? Is this the way to go? Is that the way to go? It's like, I need to put my idea down right now. <laughs> Do you have a sense of how long that takes for you? Are you kind of like, all right, I need to conjure this in a couple of minutes or I'm going to need half an hour or I need to walk around the block? It's quick now. It's very quick now. It's, um, which uh, it doesn't always sit well with my fellow songwriters in the room because I may mm. hear, you know, one pass of the chords and go, here's the full song in three minutes, <laughs> um, which is always fun and funny. Um, but I guess, um, yeah, it still leaves room for the other person to then finesse those ideas for me. Um, mm. But yeah, that tension is really something special. <laughs> I was going to say on your sometimes EP, you know, dropping soon, you got a track with Jerome Farrar called Tuesday. And in the chat I had with you for NME, you said um, he came in and he had he was sort of bouncing on this sort of like, and you would do a better version of it than me. What, what was his sort of like his little sort of vocal idea that you kind of, you guys all vibed off? Yes. So like we jammed all those chords out. Um, everyone kind of just started playing their instruments. And then Jerome came in with that, uh, 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 uh. and that set the tone for the whole song. Um, so again, it's that thing of, you know, two songwriters in the room and whoever gets that idea out sets the tone for the whole rest of the session. It almost sounds like an ad lib that, that little yeah. bit at the start. hundred percent, hundred percent. And it's, it's cool because, um, the whole song kind of got built on an ad lib and it's just because he got that idea out on the spot. Yeah. yeah. How do you pull it all back when you know that, oh God, I've, I've got a better idea or, you know, how do you sort of tuck your ego away? Sometimes you just, sometimes you just don't. Like, I think sometimes if you hear something and you go, oh, I think my idea is a little bit better. Sometimes you've got to sit there and swallow it because you just didn't get in quick enough. And uh, you don't, <laughs> you don't want to, I guess you don't want to disrupt the flow of the whole session. Because usually by that point, the producer and the other writer, they're catching a vibe and they're doing something. Mm. So for you to be the person who's like, mm, this sucks, I have a better idea, <laughs> it's, it usually doesn't work out well for you. Would you be like, like you, you do the session and then half an hour after you send an email going, hey, look, guys, like <laughs> I got the stems and I think this is what should happen. Look, there's definitely been times where I've taken the song away and then just gone home and recorded my idea and then sent it back and gone yeah so what do you guys think i was just mm. messing around and you know i caught a vibe on what you guys were doing and this is how i expanded on it listen to you just sneaking that in there there's an art to that as well yeah totally and what that comes down to and a lot of what the beatles article talks about or at least what paul is kind of like riffing on is that that sense of that you obviously have to be so vulnerable to collaborate but within that, you also need to be sort of like confident and brash to own your ideas and suggest what should go on. And, and those two things are, don't always, I mean, very rarely sit side by side. You can't kind of be meek and brash at the same time. To So you have to pick your spots. And I guess that's what you're saying when you come in, you kind of, that's kind of what you're doing. You're in hyper this hyper alertness to be able to read that. And you say that when you started collaborating it was hard and it was a bit shit telling, you know, with people going, no, that doesn't work. So how do you go from accepting that or moving past that and then almost training yourself up to be this kind of creative weapon at ready for anyone's disposal? At anyone's disposal, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a really important, I guess, kind of thing is um, something that my manager, Wee, said to me a lot was, um, you know, we're making music, we're not performing heart surgery. 
that's super important because if you go into that space kind of thinking to yourself, we're just going to make a song and it doesn't really matter if it's the greatest hit the world has ever heard or if you're just making something and it's fun in the moment and it, people never hear it. Um, so I think like it's, it's a lot of putting aside that immense pressure to create something perfect. Um, I think that just aids in the whole process because then it, it doesn't really matter which role you've taken on. If you're the bold, brash one, if you're the meek one in the room, it doesn't really necessarily matter because at the end of the day, it's just a song. And so what about when it's your stuff and you're inviting people to collaborate and that does that shift the power a little bit where you kind of get to veto and okay stuff, but you want people to feel welcome and bring their best game? Yeah, a hundred percent. I think, um, for me, inviting others into the space, um, is such like a curated thing. And it's more of a thing of like, I know that we're going to think on the same wavelength. I know that you're not going to throw something crazy at me. That's just not going to work within that space. Um, so it's always someone who's going to challenge me, someone who's going to make me do that thing where I have to push my ideas out quick. Cause they're going to be quick, but also someone who's going to bring something complimentary into the space. I think, um, it's, it's good to experiment. I think it's good to get people who think differently into sessions. But I think if you know already what you're going for, um, you do have to pick something complimentary. Mm. When I was working for Mixmag as a, as a journalist in 2003, when I was in London, um, I remember they asked, come with the best ideas. You know, we do 75 things you need to do this summer in London. And I put a bunch of ideas in and my editor at the time said, most of those ideas are rubbish, Mikey, but we like these three. <laughs> and it was a good kick in the cojones. Who's the first person and what's the anecdote that you can share with us about, you know, be, sort of being told, no, I'm not into that idea, Kai, and you kind of going, oh, and then having to sort of make peace with that. The very first person, and I haven't recovered, was my own brother. So the very first time we said, all right, let's finally do this collaborative thing together. Cause he was the first person that I kind of did a collaborative session with. I put my ideas down. Of course you're feeling your most comfortable because like we're related. How bad can it be? And he tore me to pieces. He absolutely tore Oof. me to pieces. He was like, that songwriting sucked. Please don't try to rap ever again because you can't do it. And just, yeah, let's scrap it and go again. And I was like, and you know what? We haven't done much together since. Um, <laughs> but the second person would have been Billy Davis yeah. coming into that space and not really knowing that genre um, all too well and him kind of being the introduction for me into Neo Soul and Soul Music. Yeah, a lot of our first sessions are him going, that doesn't work. <laughs> wow. Yeah. How good to go through that kind of, you know, boot camp in a way. Yeah, for sure. It was intensive. And I think um, I learned a lot, a lot quicker than I would have if I didn't have him telling me that it just sucked. <laughs> mm. Is it difficult to navigate then, and this relates back to the Beatles article, but then credit for what you've done? Like it's always fascinating to sing, you know, like a Kanye record or whatever, and there's like 43 songwriters on like a two, <laughs> two and a half minute song and that kind of thing. Like is someone getting 2%, someone's getting 15%, someone's – how does that work in, a, in, in almost a technical sense, I guess? It's interesting because I think I always try to be the person who's diplomatic and I do a Nashville split most of the time where it's like there's X amount of people in the room, so we're going to split it up by how many people in the room. And there's, uh, there's an incidence of that sh shooting me in the foot because – that mm. Slum Sociable song with myself and Miller and Ed, Ed and I did the session and Ed did the whole beat and I wrote all the lyrics. And then Miller came in on the second session 
and he didn't change any lyrics. He just sang the lyrics that I wrote for him. But we did a Nashville split where it was like, you know, 33, 33, 33. And then obviously Slum Sociable broke up and Miller wasn't, you know, making music anymore. And it was kind of like Ed and I had this moment at a party at our manager's offices and we were like, hey, why didn't we go 50-50 on that song? Because <laughs> Miller doesn't even care anymore. He's just, uh, he's chilling. He's collecting royalties and uh, he doesn't care. <laughs> yeah. Tough. Is it better to go that way and go, oh, well, I've done, done someone a solid. I mean, it depends how big the song gets. Hey. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, it all, it's, it's also, it so often happens, obviously, you know, the history of music, but it seems that those who can basically agree to that, that split irrespective of kind of like you know who put reverb on that snare drum or whatever then that's going to give you longevity and at the end of that it's going to work out for you maybe not that day in the room but 10 years down the track when you're still together or collaborating yeah exactly i think it's um like i said um you know it's not heart surgery it's not a research paper where you know in a hundred years time people are going to want to know who made the scientific discovery i think it's people will look back and go oh that's really cool that those three people were in a room together mm. so yeah don't think it matters too much think i when i interviewed karen o I sort of talked a bit about collaboration and you know about forgiveness and just about working through things in your life that you've got to kind of make peace with and she said this that great quote the first to apologize is the bravest the first to forgive is the strongest and the first to forget is the happiest I just absolutely love it. That's it was awesome. Like up an in- inspirational quote. <laughs> Desiderata coming up in just a second. <laughs> Yahoo! Ah, in just a moment, I think we're going to, I think we should, I think we should talk to Kai in more in depth about her career coming for sort of 20 feet from stardom and stepping out into the limelight. Just a moment, my friends. Kai, I'm listening to your. EP this morning, it's called Sometimes, and I'm hearing Solange, and I'm hearing Malboy, and I'm hearing, God, I'm just hearing even a bit of early Shaka Khan, hearing all kinds of amazing sort of uh, very personal, very tactile harmonies and choruses and pre-choruses, and yeah, I just think it's absolutely going to happen for you, and I'm very, very happy to have you on the show today with Marcus and I, Zimbabwe-born, London-raised, Australian-based. When you initially got here, you made a bit of an announcement to your class in high school where you said, because your full name is Kylie Tadiwa Charunga, and you said, I'm going to be the next Kylie. <laughs> How did that go down? How did that go down? It, it Look, it didn't go down well at all. Uh, <laughs> they were not into it. They didn't like it. I thought it was the greatest announcement maybe anyone's ever made coming into a new space. And I was like, you know what? This is going to make me so cool. The only black kid in school, correct? <laughs> the only black kid in school. I rock up with this pompous English accent in the middle of, <laughs> you know, southeast Melbourne, and I'm like, yeah, I'm your next Kylie. <laughs> Deal with it. <laughs> I don't know why I ever thought that was going to work out for me, um, and it didn't for the two years that I was there. It was, uh, yeah, a bit brutal. <laughs> mm. What age did you come to Australia? So I was 10, about to turn 11, so... Yeah, that kind of like in-between age where you're either really established where you are already and you've kind of got your friends going or, I don't know, it's that weird transition period where like you're you're not really a tiny kid anymore and you're a bit more self-aware, but you're like not quite a moody teenager yet. So it was an mm. interesting time to move countries. And you've kind of felt like you're starting to figure things out. So probably a bit of a shock when that gets taken away and you've got to do it again. 
Big time. And I think having come from the school that I was at and having grown up with most of those kids already for years and years and years and coming into a space where, you know, being very confident and being very outgoing, you just dominate the space. Um, and you know, you, you get very used to everything kind of being a little bit about you a lot of the time. <laughs> um, so, you know, when you kind of, you know, when you feel like you have so much autonomy and independence and, you know, you're headstrong already at 10 and you come into a space that doesn't accept that it is winding, you know, mm. I think too, for, for you, cause you're born in Zimbabwe, you're out there, you're catching guavas that are falling from the trees. This is golden hue all around you. You're doing dances to Shaka Khan and, you know, Michael Jackson in front of, you know, with the kids in the neighborhood. And then you go to London and then you to start again, you probably feel like, oh, I've done it. I've started again. I, I'm good now. But your parents being so driven and so restless, they didn't, they got sick of the, I think the gray and the, the bleakness of, of London. And so they were like, let's head for Utopia, <laughs> AKA Australia. And so to come over here and have to start again, that's, you, you're probably, it was probably a, almost a defense mechanism for you to say, I'm going to be the next Kylie, you know, like defense mechanisms slash, you know, a bit of territorial pissing. Exactly. I mean, the first time when we moved from Zimbabwe to the UK, I was super, super young. But again, it was that whole thing of, um, starting from the lowest rung. And I remember, you know, the first couple of recesses, some of the girls wouldn't let me play with them because they were like, oh, we don't play with black kids. And it was the first time I actually ever realized that I was a different color. And I was like, I went home and I was like, mom, like, what does this mean? They said they don't play with black kids, but like, I'm not black, am I? And she was like, oh, well, yeah, you're black. And I was like, but I'm, <laughs> I'm brown. Like, <laughs> I don't even know what that means. So yeah, I think going again to a different country, there was a part of me that was like, that's never going to happen again. Um, I'm never going to be the meek kid who's asking to play again. It backfired. <laughs> I should have been. I should have been the meek kid asking to play. <laughs> if you were that meek kid, though, you wouldn't have gone on to do this uh, singing competition, which I think was 800 kids down to 20. You can pick up the story from here because I think it's pretty special. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I think when you fight for a couple of years to keep that self-confidence and to keep sort of being that person, even though everybody doesn't want you to be, um, it builds just this layer of self-confidence that I think um, becomes pretty unshakable. And I think going into high school, I carried that on with me and I said, I'm, I'm going to do it again. I'm just going to go into high school and I'm going to go, yep, this is me. I think I'm cool. You can either think I'm cool or you cannot, but I still think I'm cool. <laughs> and I think doing that singing competition was super daunting because there were so many kids entering. And I remember the first stage took, you know, two days. I think it was like a whole weekend thing. And it like just felt like this big audition process and this big arduous task of like singing in front of so many people and singing so many times. But, you know, that singing competition went from 800 kids down to the final 20 and I think to even get to that stage and then to win the competition you know you just had to have this feeling and I did have this feeling of I'm I've gone this far I'm going to win so yeah I think that's something that was instilled in me from people trying to beat it out of me <laughs> and that was at uh, Thornbury Thornbury Theatre in front of what you know 1500 people or so it was yeah, so it's a song called Bonnie and Clyde, and it was like the first song that I'd ever written um, for my first EP when I was going by my full name. And yeah, I guess I always had that sense as well of like, I want to sing my own songs, and my own songs are good enough to compete against, you know, some of these big ballads that the other kids were doing. So yeah, I entered my own song, and I won with my own song. So that was, it was a big moment for me, 
as a musician and as like, I guess now a career artist, because it was the first kind of moment that I was like, yeah, I can, I can actually do this and I can put my own songs into the sphere. Yeah. I was going to say that, was that a validation that made you realize that you, you know, fuck it, I'm going to be a professional musician or had you in hindsight probably already decided somehow that that was going to happen for you. And this was just one of the early outlets. I think it was one of the early outlets because I think, um, you know, as a kid, as like a five-year-old, I was just always telling everyone that I was going to be a pop star. I was either saying, I'm going to be a pop star or I'm going to be a doctor, whichever one I decide, that's what I'm going to be. Um, and I think because I said it with such confidence, people constantly validated me. Um, so I think getting to that stage, I was like, oh, I can be a pop star if I want to be a pop star. So yeah, that was like a real moment of like, that sort of switch kind of flicked and I was like, yeah, yeah, I can do that. I can write my songs and put them out there. And what was your writing process like that at the time? Because you, you we were talking earlier about collaboration. I'm guessing at this point, I guess you're going blind, aren't you? You're kind of like probably listening and watching a lot of stuff and then trying to recreate it for yourself. Um, you know, were you, were you aware of or conscious of becoming a songwriter? Yeah, it's something that kind of happened to me. I think I, I never wanted to force songwriting. Yeah, just because I, I think I'd kind of seen my brother go through the process of learning how to write. And I kind of had sat there and listened and gone, mm, I don't know if I want to go through all of that. <laughs> so it almost kind of felt like the first song happened when I was ready for it to happen. And, you know, I was a solo writer for years and years and years. I hadn't collaborated with anyone. It was just me and my guitar a lot of the time. So it was, a, it was an interesting process, I guess, because collaboration was never really something that was on the cards. I think um, I thought it was just best to do it by myself. And I also thought that was the most authentic way to do it. You've collaborated uh, with Touch Sensitive on the track Finest Qualities. So showing off, this whole EP shows off, you know, so you can do some dancey stuff, you know, Neo Soul, Straight Up R&B. There's an amazing sample cut on there as well. How did you approach, yeah, working with Touch Sensitive? And is this a very sort of considered thing for you to sort of want to move more into the dance world or just kind of show that you can do anything and your voice can sit on anything? Yeah, it's interesting. One of my first tours that I ever went on was Billy Davis supporting Touch Sensitive. And I hadn't really heard Touch Sensitive's music beforehand. And, you know, all of a sudden to go from never hearing something to hearing it every night for a couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a strange feeling. And to also really love hearing it. You know, and the first time I heard him, I was like, this is really interesting because it's almost where I sit sonically, but it's just sort of just like left a field. And I remember sort of thinking at some point I would like to do something like that. And um, I think it's funny that it was touch sensitive because it feels like a full circle moment. But yeah, after writing that song and we kind of cycled through a couple of producers and we kind of just didn't like where it was going sonically. Like there just was an element that was kind of missing. And Nate, my other manager was like, Hey, what about touch sensitive? And it just like, it clicked in that moment that actually when I wrote the song, I was thinking about that tour and I was thinking about those sounds and how to recapture those sounds. Um, so I think it's really funny and full circle that, yeah that he's gone um, and produced it now. Yeah, it's so sick. Now take us back to a certain Leanne Le, Leanne Le Havis concert. She was supporting Coldplay at the time, did a gig at Howler. You were in the second row singing BVs, <laughs> singing <laughs> harmonies, the whole concert. Then you went up afterwards to try and meet her at the back, which sort of started this amazing sort of domino effect that's led to, you know, kind of led to where you are today. 
Yeah, massively. Uh, that show is so hilarious because I'm still the biggest Leanne Le Havis stan, like the biggest fan of hers. And it was so hard to even try to figure out like where she was going to be after the show. And like we tried to hide in the howler, like in the actual venue, like in the booth, <laughs> like just try to kind of duck. And then security found us and kicked us out. And then one security guard while we were being kicked out was like, the artist door is around the back. So, legend. A friend and I kind of just like ran to the back of the building and then we were just waiting there for Leanne. And we bumped into a bunch of other kids who were also waiting for her. And, you know, we got to talking and we were talking about music. And they were like, oh, actually, were you the girl who was singing the harmonies in the second row? And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, that was me. Like, you know, I love making music as well. And they're like, oh, cool. Like, can you sing us something? So, kind of gave them like an impromptu little performance there. And, you know, we swapped details and I had my first EP coming out, um, I think 10 days or something or a week or something after that. Um, so we kind of swapped contact details. Um, Leanne came out, she was talking to us. She offered us some blueberries, which is really, really cute. Everybody said no. <laughs> Everyone said no because they were too nervous. And I was like, heck yes, I'm eating blueberries with Leanne La Harvest. Um <laughs> <laughs> and we were all kind of talking and she just looks me dead in the eye and she puts her hands on my shoulders and she's like, do you make music? And I was like, yes. And she's like, I don't know what it is. I don't even know you, but I just feel like you've got something. Like, I just feel like you're going to do something. And I was so taken aback because obviously I, I'd never released anything in my life. Like I barely even played a show. And she was like, you know what? One day we're probably going to play the same stage. <laughs> and I remember just being like, just so like, oh my God, like, what does that even mean? And it's really funny because these kids that I'd swapped numbers with and details with, they ended up listening to the EP and messaging me and being like, hey, your music's really cool. We really like this. By the way, we're running this event um, at M Pavilion in the city and you should come and play. And it was so funny because by the time I played that, I had just changed my name to Kai and kind of started making this new sound. And I was the tiniest person on this big lineup. It was like Remy and Kayit and KG and like all these artists that I've loved looking up to in Melbourne. And of course, Sampa was meant to make a cameo there as well. Um, so it was my first time kind of being around that scene. And it was those kids that had invited me to come and play the show. And off the back of that show, um, Arij, who was also another event organizer, had me come and play my own headline show at like a Sonic Futures for African Youth show. And I went and I played that show. And again, it was a it was one of those things that I wasn't even going to go and play the show. I felt pretty sick that day. And I just said to myself, you know, I'll go and play the show. And I'm playing the show and I can see this group of girls in the corner and they're holding up their phones in the corner so I went and did my little thing and started singing to the phones and one girl pulls her phone down and it was Sampa and I freaked out I was like oh my god Sampa the Great is standing at the edge of the stage hyping me up recording me on her phone <laughs> and she came backstage after the show and you know congratulated me and was like you're so cool like you're super dope like what's your deal kind of thing and we talked for a bit and I was an idiot and I didn't get her number <laughs> we didn't swap details which was so dumb um and it was funny I was walking through the city two weeks later um with my partner at the time and we were talking about it and I was like why didn't I get her number like that was so dumb and he was like oh you know well next time you see her you have to get her number and as he was saying that she turned the corner on Burke Street <laughs> 
she turned the corner on Burke Street and I was like, this is not happening. This is literally insane. She turned the corner and I was like, Sampa, hey. And she's like, oh, Kai, like, what's up? And we started talking again and she's like, hey, like, let's swap numbers. And we swap numbers. Um, and about a year later, she asks me to be her backing vocalist in her band, um, Tando, who Mikey, you just spoke to on the podcast as well. Oh, yeah. She um, had just gotten pregnant with Charlie. So Amazing. I took Tando's spot. Um, the first tour we did was in Africa. And then there was a Europe tour that Sampa was going on straight afterwards. And I actually wasn't invited on that tour. I did a little sneaky and I was like, oh. I was like, hey, I'm from the UK. So after we're done in Africa, I'm going to go to the UK and I'm going to go see some friends and family. I can see you guys have got some dates going on. Do you want me to come and sing? And they were like, well, if you're already there, then sure. <laughs> so I camped out in the UK Absolutely. for six weeks, for six weeks um, until Glastonbury. And they all came back six weeks later and we get to Glastonbury and we're like loading out the van and we get to our dressing room and Leanne La Harvest's dressing room is next door. Amazing. And I'm just like, wait, we're playing the same stage. <laughs> and the chain of events to get there was literally from that night that she said that we would. So it was crazy to see her and be like, oh my God, like, I don't know if you remember, but like I was this kid in <laughs> Melbourne and like you said to me, like, we're going to play the same stage and like, here we are, we're playing the same stage. Um, and it's just so funny. Like, it's hilarious how that all worked out and just the chain of events. And so lucky you ate the magic blueberries. Exactly. The magic blueberries. <laughs> oh, comes back to the blueberries. That is a beautiful, beautiful story. And, you know, talking about someone you're super influenced by, I reckon what we do now is we finish this wonderful episode and we cut to the bonus episode where we get to talk about your influences. We'll smash out a tight 25 minutes there. When's the actual EP drop? It's coming out November 12th, I believe. Excellent. And then you're touring with Young Franco as support. And what's plug your own uh, your own tour as well. When, when's all that happening? Yes. So that is all happening from March onwards. So lots of Kai dates that will be released. We're going to do a nice big tour poster release um, just after that EP. So it'll be around March, April time. Obviously, we tried to book that tour before and we sold out a lot of those tickets. Um, so it's going to be really exciting to reinstate those shows as well as announce some new ones. So It'll be um, mostly East Coast, so Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne. I'm genuinely a little bit emotional that we can talk confidently about shows happening in our <laughs> lives soon. <laughs> exactly. So exciting. Yeah, it should be. Yeah, yeah, no, it feels great. Hey, friends, you can support Hit Different and other Mushroom podcasts covering Australian music. Apple Podcasts, get involved. Apple, quite a nice company. We talked about the Beatles earlier. It all comes full circle. Are they connected? Fuck it up. Let's connect them now. Thank mm -hmm. you.